today is a special day for one big reason is that um, we chose today to be kind of the day that we honor our graduating seniors. Um, so we have four that I think are here today. And so here's what I want the four of y'all to do. I want y'all to grab your stuff because you're committing to something here and come forward and you're going to park yourselves up here for the remainder of our time. But before you park yourselves, we're going to talk for a second. I need a microphone. Where'd they put them? I don't know. Hey, there they are. All right. Like now, come on, let's go. So we have Heinrich, Ethan, Sydney, and Nathan. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. You got to come stand up here. Let them see your fresh, pretty faces. Hey, guys, these are our graduating seniors. Can you? So three of them have been connected to our church for just about forever. Heinrich, you're mostly the new guy, but you've been around for a few years now. So uh, we've got all kinds of stuff in store for today, and we want to celebrate y'all. But first, we're going to make this awkward by asking simple questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Ethan? Um, I'm going... He's got it. Just I'm going on. to Kent State University to become an air traffic controller. I am going to Southern New Hampshire University to become an accountant. Whoa. I'm going to Stetson University to become a social worker. I'm going to John Jay University in Manhattan to major in criminal justice. Whoa. Very cool. So what are you like most excited about? And you're not allowed to say leaving your parents' house. Well, most importantly, I'll have a Dunkin' Donuts on campus, so that's good. Um, but I, like, air traffic control is something that you can't really do, like, before you have the job. Like, you can't just go, like, sit in an airport somewhere. So, Probably like, a bad idea. It'll be nice to, like, actually, like, see what it is and everything. Leaving high school is probably the best. Okay. The biggest thing. I, I was in the same boat as you. <laughs> the warm weather. <laughs> She's going to school in Florida, guys. Yeah. Um, and I think the campus I'm going to is very diverse in like, their thinking and stuff, so I'm excited to like see other people's opinions and things like that. Kind of similar. I wanted to meet new people and kind of experience the, the Manhattan New York City because I've always wanted to um, live there. It would be very cool. So Awesome. Awesome. All right, one last question. How can your church family be praying for you? Like maybe it's something you're a little intimidated by, but you know God's big enough and you just want your church family to pray. Um, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of family out there, so the, just that the 10-hour drive won't be too far. Safe travels, because I have to commute every day. Uh, to Manchester, even. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in the winter, you don't snow. You got a blizzard going in. <laughs> yeah, it's really far away. <laughs> they don't get mugged. <laughs> Good job. Everybody pray that Heinrich doesn't get mugged. Okay. All right, so listen, we wanted to give you just a little bit of, uh, of a present today. Um, 
so what we're aiming at doing today is equipping y'all. Like, we've been working at equipping y'all for, for years now, but we wanted to give it one last major push. And so one of the things that we wanted to do, uh, we like to do here, is give Bibles. Um, JB, which one goes to who? They're different. All right. So... Sydney and Ethan both have gotten Bibles from us in the past. They're really good Bibles. And so we, the two guys that have not gotten Bibles from us before are getting ones today. These are big adult Bibles. You can like beat somebody up with that. I wouldn't suggest it. They probably won't like you or Jesus after that. But like you should like read it and then talk to them about Jesus. And that might actually, and maybe you won't get mugged. <laughs> like, I don't know. Another thing we wanted to give you, and we got one for each of you, is a little book, just a little thing. This one won't take as long to read as other books I've loaned you. Um, but it's called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Here's the deal. We think that God's will for your life is way less complicated than what we often make it out to be. That, that you don't have to put a fleece on the ground like, like Gideon did. And you don't have to uh, necessarily you know, sow a seed. Like that, that's, that's not actually in the Bible. Most of the time, God's will for your life is to repent of sin, do the things that God has called you to do, the simple things that God has called you to do, and then take the next step that works for you. And so that's what this is all about. We want you to succeed in life. We want you to be just the kind of people that the church needs and is blessed by in you know a generation to come. And we think that God's preparing you to be those kind of people. And so we want to help equip you to do that. So here's what we want to do. We want to spend a second praying for these four people. And then I'm going to make them sit right there on this front row because no one ever sits on the front row, and I can make it happen today. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to open up God's Word this morning, and I want to show you in God's Word what I think is something that y'all need, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these four young people. Thank you for uh, the plans that they've been making for themselves, and, and, and I think they're good plans. Uh, they've, they've got hopes, and they've got dreams, and they want to kind of change the world on some things, and that's a good God-given thing. But God, um, even more than they need plans, they need your presence. And so, God, as we uh, get ready to send them out and they move off to different places, and whether it's Manchester or the other side of the country, God, you are the God who goes with them and goes before them and, and uh, resides with them and by them and in them. So, God, would you make your presence known? Would you equip them for their studies? But more than anything, would you show them your face? as they grow up into being the kind of adults the church needs, in all the varying mediums that they're going to pursue in life, would you guard them and would you hold them close and would you bless this church and the churches you send them to in the future? Bless the campuses that they're going to be sending them to. Make them missionaries on that campus. Would the, would the students that they interact with, the teachers and faculty they interact with, know a little bit more of you because of their presence there. So do big things. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, have a seat right there. All right, let's go 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We'll also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a, one of those Bibles, uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, you can uh, take that physical one home. Uh, the reason why we give away Bibles here is really, really simple. We, we believe that God's Word is big and powerful, and God uses it for these grand purposes. But the biggest purpose He uses it for is to teach us about Himself. We, we want you to know God. We long for you to know God, and we think the Bible is a great way of pursuing Him. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. And that 
that, Ethan, is how you do it. Tried to throw shade at me last week. No. (laughs) All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take the special occasion to speak directly to you four right here. Like, I'm just going to stare a hole through you. It's got like big old-time Puritan preaching. It's going to be fun. Um, at least for me. Now, like, I, I want to speak directly to you a little this morning, and it might feel a little weird uh, for all of these, you know, lesser folks behind you, but I promise there won't be any hint of me speaking past you and onto them, right? There is no way that any of these truths are universal to all of us. Only you. Only ever you, right? And so at no point this morning should anything that I say up here be taken to heart by any of the people that are sitting behind you. They're, they don't matter. Not a bit. Right? Okay, good. So as I sat around thinking about what would be a good thing to kind of use as this kind of launching pad, I guess, for sending you out into the world is now mature followers of Jesus who are prepared to, to you know, carry out the mission of God and hold the keys to God's kingdom. Small task, right? As I thought through what would be a good launching pad for you this morning, it finally occurred to me that you don't actually need one. You don't need a launching pad because the reality is that you're already passionate about a lot of things, right? And, and it's, it's all these different types of things, right? For some of you, it's, it's this thing. For some of you, it's that thing. Whether you're the more relaxed type, let it come to me person, or you're the bull nose, I'm going to change the world today kind of person, every single one of you are super passionate about at least a handful of things, right? And if I were to change the subject to any one of those things today and talk about that instead of this, you would probably lead the conversation. You're invested. You want to see growth. You want to see change, and you've got the strength and energy and the go get to kind of run out of brick wall, I guess. See, no one has to teach you how to be passionate. No one has to teach you how to, to want to change the world. It's already in you. And I think that's God-breathed. See, I think the Bible teaches us that God has built each one of you four, in such a way, hardwired, if you will, a desire to turn things upside down and to make the world a better place. And those of us in here who have been jaded by the world and, and begun to think that our influence doesn't matter, that hasn't happened to you yet. And so you still think that you can change things. And I think God put that there on purpose. I really do. It's already in you because God put it there for an incredibly massive reason. But before I get to that reason, I need to throw out a disclaimer, unless you hear something I'm not saying. All right. Um, The three of you that haven't graduated yet, there's one of you who's already gone through your graduation ceremony, but the three of you who haven't graduated yet, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to hear a speech that tries to call you to greatness, right? That's what graduation ceremonies are about. You, You get a person up there, you don't know their name, but they probably gave a lot of money to the school at some point, and they're going to give a speech. And a good graduation speech giver, if that's an actual title, it's probably not, but a good graduation speech giver is going to try to call you to greatness. And the folks that are sitting behind you right now who have been to a thousand of these things have heard a thousand different versions of it, right? It's 
the way the world works. And I can pretty much guarantee that many people will likely walk away from that speech with the impression that there's a kind of life that's actually beneath you. Now, it wasn't the intention of the speech giver, but that's what will happen. Because it's left to self-interpretation. For some, it's never leaving your hometown. For others, it's starting a family too early. For others, it's not chasing after that more lucrative job. But whatever it is, the message is going to be, well-intentioned or not, the message is going to be that your job is to take a step beyond what your peers took. Right? There will be a whole slew of well-intentioned speeches that call you and your peers to charge the front and change the world forever. But those exalted speeches will ultimately fall flat on their face and leave you with the burden of failure for not chasing after those types of things. I don't think that's a very fun way to do life, right? Like, like anybody want to go through life that way, going, ah, I didn't live up to my graduation speech. <laughs> so let me plant my flag in a reality that I sincerely hope that the four of you will remember for the rest of your life, like for real. There is top-shelf honor, at least in the Bible, top-shelf honor in God's kingdom for the follower of Jesus who day in, day out, goes to work, pays their bills, raises their family faithfully, supports their churches and serves in their community, and then dies with dignity. In fact, the Bible seems to paint the picture that God celebrates those people more than he celebrates anybody else. And when we try to make this other thing, this otherworldly idea of success, and try to force that into the church, well, we end up getting pretty squirrely. But here's the subtlety of the fallen world that we live in. Because whether you're doing something that the world would describe as awesome and noteworthy and great, or you're doing something that the world would describe as ho-hum, boring even, I think it's possible to do each either of those realities, either of those things, in a way that leads to greatness. I also think it's entirely possible, just as possible, to do either of those things in a way that only serves anybody but yourself. And the Bible paints the picture that God never celebrates that. Right? The kind of life that God celebrates. Well, maybe the Bible teaches that in the grand scheme of things, what you do may actually be less important than how you do it. You follow me? You see, I'll go ahead and tip my cards just a little bit this morning. What, I, what I'm really doing here is trying to get you to make sure, protect yourself, warn you, I guess, from letting your passion be stolen by something cheaper. I'm using cheaper here intentionally. It's an intentional word for me, but I don't use it the same way that that the rest of the world would tend to define the word cheaper. And when I'm talking about cheaper, I'm not talking about the cost of something. I'm talking about the value of something. And as, as you get older, like the more mature you get, the more you'll realize how different those two things are. Right? It's entirely possible for something to cost a lot of something but not actually be valuable at all. It's entirely possible that you will spend a lot of time and energy and effort on something that costs something, but the value is actually not there at all. Things can be incredibly expensive that have no real value. And that can be true of material things like houses and cars and whatever. Uh, it can also be true of immaterial things, right? Things that we hunger for, things that we pour out great time and energy for, resources for, but still have no value of their own. Let me give you an example. 
If that house you're chasing after shifts from just being a house, and it turns into this thing, a status symbol, I guess, if, of trying to impress your neighbor, trying to impress your buddy, trying to impress your whoever. Well, the, the house is still a material thing, but what you're really after is the approval, right? What you're really chasing after, what you're really longing for and desperate for is to be noticed. And we live in a world where if you buckle down and you try harder than the guy next to you and you... You know, put in a little extra here and, you know, spend a little extra there, you probably will get ahead in life. Like, that's the world that we live in. Welcome to America, guys. Buckle down, work harder than the, your neighbor, and you will likely have more than them. But you will likely have to spend something of actual value in order to cash in on that thing that just costs a lot, right? Whether that's relationships or, or you know, going back on a, some principle that you decided early on that you was going to define you and shape you. Just a simple trade. I, I'd rather have this, so I'll, I'll cash in some of that. And you can step into any graduation ceremony in the country over the next few weeks and hear a message about chasing after great things. It's, it's what good graduation speech givers do. But those great things are almost always going to be exclusively defined in the way that the world would live, that the world we live in tries to define great things. And so the question emerges this morning. How then should a follower of Jesus see these things? Right? How, would, how should we define them? What, what things should we chase after and call great? And this is where our text for the morning comes into play. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Corinth, Greece was a unique place in the ancient world. Um, it's just kind of this weird city in the isthmus of Greece. Isthmus is a funny word. But Greece has kind of two sections connected by a skinny part. Right in the middle of the skinny part is a city called Corinth. All right? And Corinth is this really interesting city. Um, they prided themselves on their education. And they had a big old bustling I guess, shipping industry. It was a port city, right? Um, but the thing that made Corinth special was because it was the narrowest part of Greece and all the water around Greece was really difficult to sail. And so if you could put your ship on some logs and roll it across the really skinny landmass, then you could save yourself a lot of time and a lot of money, right? And so Corinth had a lot of trade flowing through it, right? Which means that anything that the folks in Corinth wanted, they could get. Like, it's just at their fingertips, they had access to anything they wanted. They had the best education. They prided themselves on their oratory skills. Like they prided themselves on being able to stand in the public square and debate and to argue and sway you with their opinion. And, and the city was kind of young, so they had a little bit of a swagger to them. In fact, probably a better word, they were just cocky, right? They were cocky. And the Apostle Paul had an intimate relationship with the church in Corinth. He spent a lot of time there. He was their pastor at one point. He finally moved on from there to plant other churches and stuff, but he wrote a few letters back and forth uh, over the course of several years to address major sin and major doctrinal issues that popped up. And, and so in the two letters that we have from Paul to the city, the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, we think he wrote more, but we have two letters that survived, First and Second Corinthians. His purpose in those two letters is to correct that sin, but he does so in an interesting way. Because he does so by showing them how God has intentionally made the wisdom of his kingdom upside down from the wisdom of this world. He did it that way on purpose so that no one could boast. Ethan kind of talked about that last week when he had the opportunity to come up here and preach Ephesians 2, right? 
That the gospel was by grace through faith, and this faith is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. At the end of the day, God has structured his kingdom and structured his gospel in such a way that we don't get to stand up and say, hey, I figured it out. Look at me. I'm awesome. No one gets to boast in God's kingdom. God's wisdom is intentionally upside down from the wisdom of this world. And the people that made up the church in Corinth had a lot of wrong ideas of what, amount, of what it meant to be successful in the world. Now, they, in the world they lived in, they probably could be successful. And their ideas probably had like, some notoriety around, among their non-Christian neighbors. But in God's upside-down kingdom, completely backwards. See, the people that made up the church had these ideas about what was successful in the world, but Paul, well, he wants considerably more for them than that. And so he loves them, and he wants good for them, so he goes out of his way to lift the level of their eyes just a little bit to help them see what's successful on an eternal scale. And that's where verse 16 of chapter 4 emerges. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, what's that word? Transient. That's a fun word we don't use very much. But the things that are unseen are what? All right, so Paul's pretty clear here that there is nothing this side of heaven at all that is not wasting away. Just put it in the bank. That everything, we can say it a different way, there's no trinket or toy that you can chase after, no thing that you think will finally get you over the edge that you can pursue in this life. There's nothing material that won't one day end up in a trash heap somewhere. Whatever that thing is, That's its ultimate finish line. Whether it lasts a day, a year, or a hundred years, it's wasting away. That's his point here. So whatever your daydream about finally fulfilling you, you got it sitting in your Amazon wish list for the last few weeks, that item will end up rotting away in a landfill one day. Full stop. Does it mean that owning the trinket is sinful? Not a bit. But the hope and the identity that you place in it the, the valuable thing that you have to spend on it to get the expensive thing? That could be. It's a bad investment, he calls it. Don't cling to it. But he keeps going with this thought into chapter 5, and in verse 1 he says this, For we know that the tent, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, when he talks about tent, he's talking about his body. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are in, uh, still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared, for us, uh, prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. 
We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right, so I know that there's a lot in those two paragraphs to unpack, and maybe we'll have a chance at another time to really dig into it. But let me let me summarize those two paragraphs for you just a little bit. What's Paul saying? He's saying that that our own bodies are also in the category of those things that have a shelf life. Like, like whether you're talking about the clothing or the house or the food or whatever, those things will waste away. But Paul makes it clear here that, yeah, also your body. It's also wasting away. It's also got an expiration date. He's saying that our bodies are in the same category as all that other stuff. Happy graduation, guys. Here's the hard part, though, because you are literally in the worst stage of your life to receive that news. Because you think you're invincible. But the Bible tells us, tells us otherwise. At this moment, you feel the strongest, and at this moment, you feel the prettiest, and at this moment, you feel the most in shape. It's all downhill from here, guys. I mean, you could take a second and just turn around and look over the shoulder at all those less pretty people behind you. (laughs) Here's the thing. They used to feel exactly like you feel. For some of them, it was five years ago. For some of them, it was a lot longer than five years ago. But they used to feel that way. Because time is a mightier king than your work ethic. Exercise all you want. Your day's coming. Eat healthy. You should eat healthy, but your day's coming. Study, dig in, all the good things, but your day is coming. You may slow down the effects of getting old, but your day's coming. You can't stop it, and it will always, always get here before you think it will. Your body has a shelf life, and Paul says here in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5 that you will one day stand before God and have to give an account for what you did with your body. All of us, myself included, will stand and give an account before the Creator, the Maker of our bodies, of how we use the body He saw fit to give us. But it's the next part where this really begins to get interesting for our purposes today. Look at verse 11. Therefore, time out. I only bring it up because it's important, right? Those of you who have been here a while, you know. Paul's about to argue for something that is massively important for your future. I really believe that. And it's based on everything he just said. So because everything in this world is transient... Because everything in this world is wasting away, because there's a shelf life to not only the stuff you pursue, but even your very self, because of these things, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. 
We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translations may say compels us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, so Paul says that because we're on the clock and because we're running out of time and because we will all one day stand before God, the great judge of this earth, and show off our work, and because of this amazing reality of what Jesus has done for each of us on the cross because of the great gift of grace that Jesus has given to us, Paul says that it's actually quite ridiculous to do anything but live for him. And when you think about it, like what else would you choose? If, if Paul is right about these realities. Maybe, maybe he's an idiot. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. But if Paul, the Apostle Paul, is right about these realities, then one, your other options are to spend your life trying to build something that will ultimately waste away, despite your best efforts. Seems like a bad way to spend a life. Two, it will be judged by the king who called you to something different. Doesn't seem wise. And three, fails to comprehend just how massive Jesus' gift of grace actually is. So you want to run a different route? Think it'll play out differently from you than it has for everybody else? Think your little empire will have a different fate than the ones that came before it? So in the negative sense, in the negative sense, not living for Jesus based on these realities seems like a really bad call. But we can also look at this reality through a positive lens. And those of you who truly understand the gospel already know what I'm talking about. When you legitimately get, like fully locked down on, comprehend, and let it just influence every ounce of your being when you truly get what God has done for you, quote-unquote, living for Him, man, that's such an easy thing to do. I mean, don't you know what happened on the cross for me? Don't you know? Have you heard the story of what Jesus has done for me? So whatever Jesus asks is as good as done. You kidding me? He can have it. The love of Christ compels us, Paul says. But he also keeps going. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? 
the righteousness of God. Okay, so in order for me to unpack this properly, I would really honestly need a few weeks, but we don't have a few weeks. We got to pack this into just the next few minutes, all right? But let me try to get just in a couple of minutes, give you what theologians call the meta narrative or the overarching story of the Bible, right? The story of the Bible starts out with perfection in a garden. It starts with a created man being placed in a perfect and created world and being given the keys to the kingdom. It's not a bad way to spend a week. Everything is perfect. The man lives in perfect rhythm and harmony with his, between his relationship between he and God and his relationship between he and his spouse and his relationship between he and the rest of creation. Everything just clicks. How many relationships do you have like that? I don't. Everything is flawless. The first couple of chapters of the Bible is a good, good story. But it's also a story that doesn't last very long, right? Just a couple of chapters in, sin enters into the world through man's disobedience and it fractures everything. And I truly mean everything. The, the rhythm becomes disjointed and those relationships become animosity. Half a chapter after this perfection that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are hiding from each other. They're ducking into bushes because they're stupid enough to think that they can hide from God that way. There's a disconnect there. Everything is Broken and nothing that man tries to fix what was broken and to bridge that gap again get him, gets him back to that point. Nothing. And we've been trying for a few millennia now to fix ourselves. I mean, there's a reason why the self-help book is a thing. There's a reason why that's the, a massive section of the bookstore. There's a reason why we all go chasing after how to do this and how to do that on YouTube. Because we all, we all feel the disconnect. We all feel the brokenness. We all feel like this can't possibly be the end. And if I just buckle down and do my part, I can make it all right again. But despite our best efforts, Despite our best efforts of chasing after fulfillment through relationships and religion and chemical distractions or fill in the blank, those things never seem to work very long, right? Because even our very best attempt on our very best day is still stained, stained by our brokenness and our sin. The fracture is just too big, and if it's ever going to be repaired, it needs somebody outside of the fracture to fix it. This is where Jesus steps onto the scene. God himself steps in and does what no one else can do. He makes a way where there was no way. Jesus bridges the gap between God and man through his sinless life that you can't offer up and through his sacrificial death, which is already owed of you. He bridges the gap through his death on the cross. How? Because in his death, verse, what was it here? 20, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sins, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because in his death, 
Jesus pays the debt that you and I owe for our trespasses, our sin, and he gives us his righteousness in exchange. And so those who have placed their trust in Jesus' work on their behalf, now the Bible teaches that they now stand before the Father as truly innocent. Verse 17 is clear. Look at it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And on the surface, it seems like, well, that's got to be the most lopsided trade in all of history, right? What's in this for God? I mean, he gets my sin and I get his righteousness. That sounds unfair. What's in it for God? The answer is glory. It's glory. See, in the same chapter of the Bible that we see everything break because of our sin, God also, without missing a beat, without even taking a breath, goes, I am going to fix this. He promises a fix for everything that went wrong in the garden. He promises that one day all will be restored. He is God, and there is nothing that can be stolen out of his hand. He will not allow it. And so what was lost in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 is going to be, and this is a God who always keeps his promises, forever reconciled and redeemed. What was fractured in the fall is being forever repaired and rectified. And the Bible teaches that the cosmos will forever resound with the chorus of, look what our God has done. Look what our God has done. Aren't we amazed? Oh, glory be, look what our God has done. It is the grandest story in the entire universe. It is the story that all other stories just kind of wish they could be and steal their themes from. Every great hero story is a shadow of the great hero story. Where Jesus, the knight in shining armor, comes into the rescue and vanquishes the great enemy. Saves the day when all hope was lost. It's the, every great love story is a shadow of the great love story where Jesus, the steadfast lover of our souls, comes and lays down his life to purchase the freedom of his beloved and set her free from bondage. Don't we all kind of long for that final battle? Like what, what, What's in, it that, in, it, in us that resonates so deeply when we see those stories play out on a screen somewhere? When we read those stories in a book, when we hear about those stories in real life, I think we long for this. I think we've been created by God to find our rest in this. We long for the happily ever after because God has buried that story deep down to the very core of us. But here's where it gets truly amazing to me. Because according to the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, this is not simply a story, an amazing story, yes, but a story that's playing out for you to witness. You're not on the sidelines here. You're in this story. You are not only a part of the redeemed in this story, but Paul makes it explicitly clear that you are an active agent in this story. We are ambassadors for Christ, he tells us. Not bystanders, ambassadors. It's a story that God has actually invited you and I to play a part in. We're not sitting on the sidelines, we're in the game. He's invited you and I, if, if you know him, to play a part in reconciling all of the broken things in this world back to himself. All of them. 
He's invited you and I to play a role in his great story of reconciling and redeeming and restoring all things. Now, does that mean that the, the only fulfilling life for you is to, to, to go on the mission field or to, to be a leader in a church? No, in fact, most of you would probably be really bad at that. Just knowing you. I'm going to be honest. Probably not for you. Hope you don't get mugged. It definitely includes those places. God definitely calls people to the mission field and calls people to lead churches. And maybe one day he'll do exactly that for you. I don't know. But also maybe Jesus reconciling all things to himself includes all the things in all the places that you could possibly go. It definitely includes the mission field and the church but maybe it's also everything else. It plays out as you go to work day in and day out with eternity in mind. And it plays out as you faithfully raise your kids with eternity in mind. And it plays out as you support your church family and serve in your community. Maybe one day die with dignity, with eternity in mind. And a thousand other things that we could never take the time to mention. Paul calls you to be an ambassador for Christ. Ambassadors spread out all over the place. They go to all the other places, especially places where the kingdom isn't most prominent. See, God's plan for you from before the foundation of the world was to use you just like you in his great redemption plan. And so he's created you to like this thing and to be passionate about that thing and to be kind of good at this thing but could work on that thing. He's given you family and resources in all these scattered areas because he has a wonderful plan for your future. Not health and wealth, but mission. You've got talents and you've got passions. Could it be that those talents, every single one of them, and those passions, every single one of them was put there on purpose by God who wanted to use you for his glory? You've got weaknesses and insecurities. Could it be that every one of those weaknesses and insecurities was put there on purpose by God who would cause you to lean into his goodness and his bigness in those days? I think it's probably so. And so really, there's a theological question you've got to answer before you take your next major life decision step. How big is your view of God? Because the bigger your view of God is, the more confident you take that step, right? More often than not, the most godly life is simply to repent of sin and then take the next natural step in front of you. Could he call you to the, the weird step of faith? Absolutely, he could. Sure, he, he might do that one day. Could he, will there be seasons when you're not sure what that next step is supposed to be? Yeah, probably. But I love that each four of the four of you had a plan this morning. Can I, can I be honest with you? I had a plan too. It wasn't to be a pastor. <laughs> plans are great. God is bigger than plans. Right? Go chase the plan. Maybe that's exactly what he'll give you. But how big is your view of God today? 
few questions that can help you settle your mind today before you get to those moments of, what am I going to do next? Is he good? Is he in control? Can you actually trust him? See, I think to break the fourth wall here, anybody of us in this room, I think once we satisfy the answer of those three questions, what could you ever be intimidated by? What could you ever be nervous about walking into when he's called you to that thing? Is he good? Is he in control? Can I trust him? If you can answer those three questions well, the rest of a life of following Jesus isn't actually that complicated at all, really. Or at least it doesn't feel complicated. Because at the end of the day, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. So as long as you remember what the eternal finish line is, well, the steps in between kind of work themselves out. Keep a kingdom of God reality in mind as you go do what God made you good at and passionate about. Walk in obedience to the simple things you know He's already called you to and then watch how He uses it for His purposes and His glory. I think He's big enough to use even you. Even you. Exactly like you. Figure out how all those things intersect with your dual calls to pursue Him deeply and to make disciples of all nations and then your gold. Right? How does an air traffic controller make disciples of all nations? I don't know yet, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. And once you figure that out, I don't know if there's a wrong way to do life. And so when you get asked for the thousandth time over this next month, what are you going to be when you grow up? I think you can look them back in the eye and you can legitimately say God's going to use me to change the world. He's promised no less. No less. Not in a transient, temporary, it all fall apart in the end kind of way, but in one that will resound for eternity in the kingdom of God. He's going to use you to change the world if you pursue Him. So how do we respond to God's Word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think your response is to press in and repent of sin and to press into God this morning. I think you do that by being intentional to grow in your trust of who He is and what He's done for you, right? The more we, we, the more we fully comprehend those realities, the rest, every, the, everything else just kind of works itself out, right? Those two realities will affect who you are and what you chase after in this world more than anything else. Who is God and what has He done? Listen, I think followers of Jesus also carry a responsibility to turn around and disciple others in this reality too. And so who is God putting in your pathway this week, maybe today, that needs the dots connected? Who needs to hear that there are eternal realities to, to live and work for rather than just the temporary transient things we see in front of us? Perhaps the eternal plan of God is to use you to draw them into the kingdom today. So who's God got in front of you right now? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. There's other things you can do on Sunday morning, but you chose to hang out with us. I'm glad. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and I think you do that by meeting Jesus. The freedom, before you can rest in the freedom of who God has made you to be, 
The Bible teaches that you need to be rightly reconciled to God. We talked a minute ago about this great story of the universe playing out all around us. I think a major piece of that story is that we are separated from God by our own sin. Like this is a you broke it kind of thing. What are you going to do about it? You can't do anything about it. The Bible teaches that God did something about it. The Bible teaches that those who place their trust in Jesus are reconciled back to the Father because he paid the debt that is owed for our sin by dying on the cross. So maybe for the first time this morning, you need to, you see your need to repent of sin. And come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So we want to give you a chance to respond in that way this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God and his word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for, the, for 2 Corinthians and this massive view of an eternally upside-down kingdom. Thank you for being a God who's bigger and stronger and smarter than any wisdom or strength of this world. But God, I know my own heart well enough to know that I tend to be distracted by the things I can see. And I tend to chase after the things that are right in front of my face. And so maybe the answer for me is that I need you to help me see better things. Take my eyes off of the transient things of this world and put them instead on eternal realities. Help me to see the actual value of things rather than the cost of things and then invest wisely with eternity in mind. God, for those of us in here who know you, who, who long to, to be near you, would you use these truths this morning to, to cause us to repent of sin? And draw close. And God, for those of us in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to us today? Would you call people to repentance? Would you breathe new life into dead hearts? Would you grow your kingdom today? We know you're going to. Do so here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.